0: The Church has misunderstood Paul badly. So Steve Chalk argues in his new book, The Lost Message of Paul. It will be published by SPCK on the 20th of June. We've read Paul's words through our own set of assumptions, Steve says, and we need to go back to his worldview and see things the way he saw them. I spoke to Steve about the book at the offices of the charity he runs in central London, the Oasis Charitable Trust. The Lost Message of Paul is available to pre-order from the Church House Bookshop. Go to chbookshop.co.uk. Don't forget you can subscribe to The Church Times. For £10, try 10 issues, along with full access to our website, archive and iPhone and iPad app. Or for the same amount, two months full online access, including our website, digital edition, archive and app. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new reader. So first, Steve, thanks for coming on the podcast. The title of the book obviously brought to mind The Lost Message of Jesus. Why did you decide to take a similar approach to Paul?
1: Well, uh, when I wrote The Lost Message of Jesus, I intended to write a book called The Lost Message of Paul. Um, after it, um, life's busy because I run an organisation and the organisation was growing at the time I um, wrote The Lost Message of Jesus. And uh, But I think at that time, uh, I, I can't remember when that Two thousand and three, something like that, we, we probably had 200 staff. We've now got 7,000 staff. So just getting round to doing anything in terms of writing, thinking, um, is is a tough thing. You know, people say, which book are you reading at the moment? And I always think, oh, I wish I was reading a book. If I wasn't running an organisation, if I wasn't trying to manage several organisations, actually, I'd do a lot more reading um, than I, I do. So I eventually got round to doing this, partly driven by the, my inquiry in mind about Paul um, and partly driven by um, the fact that I'm constantly coming into contact through being a church leader as well as an organisational leader with individuals who so struggle with the pain inflicted on them through what I think has been a very negative reading of Paul's words. In fact, just earlier today, honestly, earlier today, I sat with somebody who's part of a church who believes that they're demonised and that they're bound for hell. And um, I tried to make a suicide attempt um, just last week. And... That's an awful place for anyone to be. Uh, so eventually this book arrived. I'm, I'm aware of the fact, of course, as we all are, that Paul wrote um, or had written about him uh, at least half of the New Testament and has had this profound impact on Christianity in all its forms around the world. And is often held accountable for all its worst excesses and its discriminations and its judgmentalism. So I think that unless you deal with the texts of Paul, then you're not dealing with the what I think is at the the root cause of so much negativity that's come from certain sections of the church across history.
0: Mm-hmm. You say you don't have much time to read but the book I mean, shows that you seem to have done a lot of reading of scholarship mm. in the book, and indeed, you say, I think towards the beginning, you're not, it's, you're not really writing anything new. You're bringing some of the findings of yeah. scholarship to a wider audience. Was, was that one of your aims to sort yeah. of communicate more widely to people who aren't in academia or aren't sort of in libraries? In yeah, yeah,
1: no, absolutely. When I wrote the Lost Message, Jesus, actually, um, uh, 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 Tom Wright. Um, wrote um, an endorsement for me then and read the book and he said "Oh, I said Steve as I, as I read this book I, I recognised uh, a lot of the themes they're mine <laughs> and I said to Tom exactly Tom and it's my job in life I think simply to take take what is written and present it simply to people so when I say I don't get a chance to read a lot I, I don't read as much as I'd like to um, but I researched this book. I've worked on this book for three years, and for the first one and a half years, I didn't write anything. I just read and read and read and read. I read the theologians. I read the commentaries of other theologians on those theologians. I read um, I read books on Paul um, that I don't think very many people in the world would have read because um, a lot of academic um, Texts around Paul are produced by scholars for scholars, and this, thi- these thick, chunky five, six, seven hundred page books mm. um, are printed very small, a number of them and they go into reference libraries in universities. And then, MA or PhD students come along and they read the relevant section or the relevant few chapters. Mm. Um, in fact, I've been in touch with um, Tom. Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, about this book because I disagree with Tom's yeah. theology at various points, but I wanted to write to Tom and say. Tom, I've got this book coming out, and I'm very grateful to you, as I hope I say in the book. I've learned so much from you, but there are things about your theology, I just think you have the wrong framework, and I'm, gonna, I'm going to say that. And he was very gracious and, and wrote, wrote back and said he was looking forward to reading the text. Uh, but um, then he wrote back, uh, he wrote and said, have you read uh, my text, Paul, and some of his recent interpreters? Now, that's a huge yeah. volume. Oh. And so I wrote back to Tom and said, every single word, and took notes on the whole thing. Oh, no. And he wrote back and said something like, Gosh, I can't remember what it Because I, I swear hardly any people would have ever read that text.
0: Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we'll maybe we come back to Tom. I was very fascinated by the way you mm. do disagree with him at points. But just firstly, um, other <laughs> theologians in history disagree, particularly. Augustine Luther Calvin you say Mm. the church has actually read Paul through the lens of those figures and others and that's Mm. distorted what you think is Paul's original message in his first century context could you say a bit about that the Paul you think actually Mm. existed and what his message was Mm. and how it's been distorted well
1: well you you know there's this famous saying isn't there there, that Augustine took the worst of St Paul um, then Calvin took the worst of Augustine Augustine. Uh, Calvin quotes Augustine over a thousand times um, in, in his texts and that's what we've ended up with. I think the important thing to remember, which I hope I bring out in the book, is Augustine's fifth century. He's a Western scholar in the fifth century. He's a Latin scholar in the fifth century, and he was part of Roman Catholicism. What we often don't <coughs> recognise is it's called Roman Catholicism, it was imperial Catholicism, you know, it was, it was Roman Empire Catholicism, and Augustine um, was writing very much in that genre and to that Western audience into the empire, the superpower of the day. But in actual fact, the first Christian theologians were Greek, not Latin, And the first uh, really important centre of Christian thinking was the theological school in Alexandria in um, Egypt, and it was from there that came the Desert Fathers, etc., etc. So Clement of Alexandria, Oregon, etc., etc. These thinkers, uh, well, Clement says that he was taught by a disciple of one of the disciples. Mark founded the church in Alexandria. I had the privilege of going there recently and speaking at the Alexandria Theology School, which missed several centuries but has been re- re-founded or restarted. Um, in the West, Oregon is treated as a as a heretic now, but he was made a heretic by the Roman Catholic Church three or four hundred years after his death. So I went to speak at the Anglican Cathedral in Alexandria um, two months ago, three months ago. And there it is. It's the Anglican Cathedral there. It's not the Coptic Church. And there, as you go through the entrance, is a huge um, icon of Oregon. Uh, And I I said to the bishop, um, I said, who's that? He said, Oregon. I said, but the Western Church thinks he's a heretic. He said, He was a great theologian. (laughs) What he said wasn't palatable in the end with what Roman Catholicism wanted wanted to push. And so you see different themes um, developing in the early church. And even when Augustine eventually came along, I think I quote him once in the book, uh, saying something like, this is my view, however, it's not the view of most of the church fathers, most of the church leaders. He recognised he was breaking with their thought.
0: Mm. I mean, key theme for Augustine, I guess, was original sin. And Mm. then for Luther, this is obviously a very um, quick summary Uh, of Luther. It's it's the notion of you know justification by faith and yes. um, being made right um, yeah and yeah. it's
1: interesting on, on the on the theme of original sin the idea of original sin never crops up in any uh, rabbinic thinking about the story of of uh, Adam and Eve the the Genesis that Genesis, Genesis creation story now because we have uh, the Mishnah and the Talmud we can look back before Jesus um to some of the scribes and sages and thinkers then as well as on and the the jewish the jewish thinkers and scholars have never interpreted never ever interpreted that genesis story as being about original sin it's about it's about the human innocence and it's about the growth into moral responsibility and decision making but not original sin and i've had the chance to talk to rabbinic scholars about it they they joke about several of these things and funny they say well first <laughs> first you steal our bible the hebrew bible and call it the old testament then none of you being familiar with hebrew or our traditions or the traditions of the scholars tell us what you think it means mm. so the, the, the concept of sin doesn't occur in the um, Adam and Eve story. It's just not there. The idea of Satan isn't in the Adam and Eve story. It's not there. There's a talking snake, but no mention of Satan. There is no mention of the word sin. It's a, it's a story of the growth into moral responsibility of mankind. It's a parable. It's not a piece of a historical narrative. I know that's offensive to some Christians, but talk to your local rabbi about it, you know. So, but Augustine got hold of this thing and pushed this very pessimistic view about human nature, that we're born into original sin and that we sin, um, we sin not because we do things wrong, we sin because we are, at core, um Sinners, we are born with no vestige of good left within us. We are born totally in total depravity. That's a very pessimistic view of what it is to be a human. So I think about it theologically, but I also think about it in terms of the job I do. Oasis is responsible for 52 schools at the moment. We have 30,000 young uh, Uh, children and young men and women in our schools we only work in poor communities uh, where people have been deprived of the love and the care um, that we need to thrive and so I have to reflect on my theology in the life of the the light of reality we also run 60 70 housing units we work with vulnerable um, uh, adults um, around the country we're involved with the custodial system. We're working, with the, we're working with the toughest of people from the toughest of backgrounds. I think that drove me to, to think about these stories in a different way, and this theology in a different way as well.
0: And I mean, with Luther, obviously, that's, that's the, I guess he had the idea that how is he made right before a holy God? Yeah. How is he justified not by works? I think bringing in the book the new perspective on Paul and the, yeah. the need to take the E.P. Sanders and J.J. Yeah. Dunn and others like that and the need to take in... Well, I should say new perspectives, I suppose, yeah. but to, to take account of the Second Temple context, and that changes a lot. You think Luther, Luther really got it wrong?
1: I, I, I think he got it completely wrong. So uh, Luther's problem, of course, was, as, as these aren't my thoughts, as you rightly point out, these things have been said for decades by scholars. Um, uh, Sanders, um, Ed Sanders, Tom Wright, studied under Ed. Ed was... Um, uh, worked in Oxford. He was a professor in Oxford, and so N. T. Wright, Tom would say himself, it's it, uh, everything that's thought by James Dunn, by Tom, by various others. They're just ripples of what Sanders uh, Sanders did, and 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 what that was was he simply said, Paul was a Jew he wasn't he was always a jew he was a hebrew thinker he wasn't against judaism he wasn't writing off judaism luther comes along though and he's against medieval Catholicism, with all the problems that it was creating and he looks into romans and he reads um, paul is fighting the same kind of battle as he is so he gets uh, medieval Catholicism and the Judaism of the first century m- m- muddled up together and sees them as the same and and Ed uh, Sanders would just say that was a giant mistake as as would Tom and, and and others and from there um, he works his theology out but he comes to this point which uh, you've you've hinted at where he interprets a Greek phrase that Paul uses um, about half a dozen times the phrase is pistus Christu uh, pistus being interpreted faith, Christu, Christ and, and, and uh, Martin Luther decides that this phrase pistus Christu means faith in Christ It's used in Romans 3, which John Stott uh, says is the most important paragraph in the Bible or in the New Testament. And uh, Luther thought was the centre of all Christianity. So Paul argues, given this interpretation, you are saved by your faith in Christ. So you get to um, saved by faith alone. We're saved by faith alone. And uh, what happened in the 70s, early 70s, building on work of former um, theologians, um, Sanders comes along and he says, but that's a wrong interpretation. It's a wrong interpretation of pistis, which means faithfulness, not faith. And so the phrase turns out to mean you are saved by the faithfulness of Christ, not saved by faith in Christ. Now, Tom um, right? uh would agree with that absolutely and he says you should normally interpret the phrase pistis Christu as the faithfulness of Christ not faith in Christ my point is that changes what Christianity is altogether
0: it's not just an academic abstract debate it's fundamental it's
1: not and there has been this abstract Um, uh, academic debate going on in senior common rooms and whispered in reference sections of theological libraries for 50 years now, but no one has said it in plain English. And I hope my book says it in plain English. If Paul was saying, you are saved by the faithfulness of Christ instead of you are saved by your faith in Christ, it changes everything. This isn't just the difference between a game of football and a game of rugby. This is the get, the difference between um, a, a game of golf and a game of rugby, a game of tiddlywinks and a game of rugby. They're completely different. If I'm saved by my faith in Christ, ironically, and this is where Luther makes a mistake, because he says you're saved by faith, not by works. Misunderstanding what Paul meant by works. I'll say more about that in the the book but he says you're saved by your faith not by works and as someone who's been a christian since i was 14 faith is a really big work it's really hard to have faith and i have friends i'm sure you do we all do who who say to us i just can't have faith I I wish I was a Christian. How many of us know people like that say, I wish I was a Christian. I wish I could believe what you believe, Steve, but I just can't believe in God. I was with somebody just yesterday afternoon in a meeting who said that to me, a fantastic man doing incredible community work through the YMCA actually. And he said, I just cannot have faith in Christ. We didn't have time because it was a different context for me to say. But Paul wasn't talking about your ability to have and to cling to faith. And then you get into questions. How much faith is enough faith? Because if I I have 90% faith and doubt 10% of the time, or is 50-50 okay? But when my faith gets down to 20% of my life and it's 80% doubt, is that still saving faith or not? It's just such a mess. And actually, it causes endless anxiety and fear and shame and guilt and lies. Um, But if you read the text as uh, Paul is saying, you are saved by the faithfulness of Christ, suddenly you're liberated. It's not to do with me and my struggle. It's to do with what Christ has done for us all. Which is why, of course, Paul says, as in Adam, we all die, so in Christ, we are all made in life. It's why, he says, that God was in Christ, reconciling all things. That's Paul's message. Paul says, love never ends. 1 Corinthians 13, the end of his great day when he was writing those wonderful words that are endlessly quoted, well, it was either the biggest mistake ever and he had to say oh I wish I'd not said that <laughs> you know i mean love love goes quite a long way but in the end you can deny it and it will turn you away or <clears throat> but he didn't cross it out he means love never ends everyone's in because god is love
0: mm. and you talk tackle some of those passages i think it's romans 5 and there's another in 1 corinthians mm. about the use of all all in adam's eye all of them made alive in yeah. you try to exp- you explain why um, all really does mean all, Yes. Um, obviously particularly in the evangelical subculture context I guess which you've existed mm. in or still exist mm. in, that's going to lead to accusations of universalism Yes. Well, uh, or should that even be an accusation, was Paul a universalist, are you a universalist?
1: N- n- no I'm not a universalist and I don't think Paul was a universalist but I'd like to come to that and define what I mean by that but first of all the all yeah that you know as in adam all die so in christ all are made alive well what people do is they do this amazing theological wriggle you know, where they claim that all means one thing in the first half of the sentence, because they all believe in original sin. We're all going to die. We're all born depraved. We're all born under this curse. But in the second half of the sentence, it doesn't actually mean all anymore. Paul is now using the word all in a completely different sense to mean all who have found Christ are in, not all are in. So, it's, a, it's an extraordinary jiggle and wiggle, and actually, it's, it's disingenuous, isn't it? I mean, intellectually, it's, it's just, wow, it's clearly, I started with a theory, and I'm going to make anything fit it, um, but to move on to the thing is, uh, am I a universalist? I, I quote in the book, um, Karl Bart. And, and, and Bart said this great thing. Bart, for me, is head and shoulders above everybody else. I mean, just just the imagination and the depth of insight, this man, and his ability to say something hugely profound in a short, simple sentence is, is wonderful. C.S. Lewis, by the way, uh, once said, and this, this always inspires me. I don't think I get anywhere near it. He said, real intelligence isn't the ability to write a complicated sentence or paragraph. Real intelligence is the ability to write a simple sentence that everyone understands. Mm. Um, So, Bart says famously, I am not a universalist, but I do believe that Christ is the reconciler of all. And there's been endless debate about whether uh, Bart, Karl Barth was a universalist, and the very debate misses the point. All the theologians in get, not all many theologians engage in this debate. Was he really a universalist? Well, he never quite said it, but he probably was. Etc. He he said it plainly: "I am not a universalist, but I do believe that Christ is the reconciler of all." Universalism, as I think Bart was talking about it, and as I understand it, is the view that any which way leads to God you know any road up the mountain and get you there you know Jesus is 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 not the centre of the universe not the sun he's just one planet in the planetary system Um, but but was saying, I don't believe that Jesus was one planet in the planetary system, and there are many others, and I don't believe that Jesus is one way up the mountain. I don't believe in universalism, but I do believe that Christ, who is the centre of everything, is the reconciler of all, which marries right back into what Paul has said, Christus, uh, uh, pistis Christu, we are saved by the faithfulness of Christ, which applies to all and then people turn on you and say, "Well, if everybody is rescued, if everyone is saved, well, what's the point of being a Christian then? You know, and what's the point of going to church?" And I always find that question funny because it gives away its motive, doesn't it? It's like, do you mean I've been going to church all this time, and it's not a waste of time? Going to be having so, more fun. Yeah, I've been sitting around else. this stuff, and I'm going to be doing something else. And, and what, what Paul's whole argument is. Far from not being into works, he spends half of his text saying, don't live like this, live like that. Put off these things, live this way. And it's because, as Ed Sanders said, right back in the 70s, Paul is a Jew. And Jews knew that they were rescued, they were saved, not because of their faith in God or because of what they'd done. They were rescued by God historically through the Exodus because God is good. God chose them. They were chosen, not as individuals, because they didn't live in an atomized Western individualistic society. They didn't think of individual in individualistic terms. They thought in communal terms, we are rescued by God. And though things go wrong in their story along the way, um, and, you know, in Jesus' lifetime, they cry, Hosanna, save us, save us. They are fully expecting that the God who they are in covenant relationship can be trusted and will do for them what he has done in the past. You can rely on God to fulfill his promises. We are God's people. We are saved, Not not by our works, not by anything we think or do or have faith in, We are saved because God is good and can be trusted and will do these things. And all that happens to Paul is this Jew who believes these things passionately and is waiting for the Messiah who will again show that the Jewish nation are all in, whoever they are. All that happens to him is through his encounter with the risen Jesus, he comes to understand that what God is doing for the Jews, he's now doing for the whole world. That's what Paul means by his statement, Jesus is Lord of the whole world. The Jewish Messiah, the Li- Jewish Liberator, is now the Liberator of the whole world. All are reconciled through Christ.
0: In the book, you, this is where you do disagree with Tom Wright, I think, and it's in Surprised by Hope, where he talks about the question of, kind of hell or whether anyone can be eternally mm. lost. And He talks about there are those who are so... I think the divine image is so defaced and they're almost beyond hope and beyond pity and God will say, thy will be done. You hear that quite a lot. I think people drawing on C.S. Lewis where people say it's not that God wants people to be lost. What's your disagreement with Tom Wright on that? Because you've pretty vehemently take issue
1: with that stance. Well, I I, I think it's... Tom's my friend and he deserves Mm. to have a debate with me. But I think it's Tom being culturally bound um, and not thinking like a Hebrew... So Tom would say you have to come at Paul thinking through his lens, not a 21st century Western lens. But um, in Tom's book, Surpri- Sur- Surprised by Hope, um, actually for people who've already been crapped on by society, they're not going to be surprised by hope. In Tom's book, they're going to be surprised to learn that God is going to do to them, again, what the rest of society has always done to them. So Tom talks about um, the different ways in which people have thought of hell, and he he has many good things. It's it's a great book, you know, it's a great book. He has many good things to say in the book, but he comes to this place where he's talking about um, life beyond death, and he says, well, there's three concepts um, the traditional concepts, there's the traditional concept of eternal conscious torment, you know, which I talk about in the book, more Dante than Bible, you know, but, you know, worms and fires and et cetera, et cetera. And he rejects that. And then he says there's this annihilationism where John Stott yeah. was nearly thrown out of the Evangelical Alliance you for saying... something of Yeah, that? yeah. Well, John was nearly thrown out. Oh, I got you thrown were out. <laughs> so, but but um, uh, John Stott was nearly thrown out for saying that hell wasn't eternal conscious t- torment, but that, that those who... Um, didn't accept christ would just cease to exist be annihilated it's what tom calls conditionalism the same thing and then that tom says the third view is universalism that everyone gets saved uh, eventually by by god and uh, and then he says but i don't have any of those views because i can't go with annihilationism and john stott's view I, I don't believe in uh, any way up the mountain. Type thing. He doesn't use that phrase, but uh, universalism. Um, so I believe that there are some people who will become, as you say, ex-human and will exist forever as ex-humans. And because you exist as ex-human, you're incapable of, of winning any attraction or there's no worth in you. No one feels any sympathy with you. You exist forever personally. Individually, as an ex-human. Now, the reality is, uh, I'm just trying to think when this happened last week, last time, I sit with this kid. Her father tried to murder her mother. Her mother, a prostitute. She's in secondary school. She has absolutely no self-worth. She's never been shown any love. She has had to fight for everything. She's watched violence around her all her life. She can't react and respond in the way that I'm able to because of the love and care I've been shown. Her life is truly broken. We now know, by that I don't mean Oasis knows, although Oasis does know it, we now know that the approach That we need to take with young people in such circumstances—not just young people, um, anybody—is therapeutic. In other words, love melts the brokenness, not punishment. That's why our penal system, our custodial system, doesn't work. You lock people up and you 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 punish them, and then they come out and they reoffend because the brain is wired wrongly for those um this is the area of neuroscience and i talk about neuroscience Mm -hmm. um in, in the book in one of the chapters of the book because i think paul without understanding those 21st century terms gets it totally gets it totally gets it love never fails love always changes it transforms and what we see with young people and adults that we work with Hello, I remember the first ever project Oasis set up, when I began Oasis, 1985, I wanted to set up a housing project, and then a school, and then a hospital, and the housing project seemed easiest, so we set up a house, um, which is in South London, which we still run. And my wife, Cornelia and I had only been married a couple of years, um, Connie is a bit of an artist, but she is an artist. And she, we got this old house in the end. It took us years to get hold of. And then she, to 16 bedrooms in it. And she decorated the whole thing. And it's just beautiful artwork that she got from junk shops, you know, all the rest. It was wonderful. And we, this wonderful lounge we made, shared lounge and a table and a TV and all the rest of it. And then these young women came in to live with us. And they were rude you know they didn't I looked at them and said good morning they didn't even look at me they didn't answer me they were rude and then they started stealing stuff and within about a month of being open I I can't be exact every last piece of artwork had been stolen had gone and the telly everything had been stripped bare the house that we'd given to these girls they'd they'd taken it and sold it or let people in to steal the the things and and I just was so angry with them until I, I, I wish I was smarter than I am, until I slowly began to realise that these young women, their brains are wired wrongly, that the neural pathways, the pathways in their brain are all causing trigger responses to present circumstances, which they associate with things that have happened in their past. Um, Uh, We uh, have something, uh, I'm sure many of you will know this, the executive management part of your brain is called your prefrontal cortex. And basically other parts of your brain receive all your senses and your emotions, etc. But your prefrontal cortex on the front of your frontal lobe, its job is to sort them all out and manage them. So I may annoy you by talking for too long, but you've got the right neural connections to know how to smile at me and slowly to stop (laughs) me talking instead of walking cow or thumpy or whatever it is but these kids don't have that and lots of adults don't have that they don't have that prefrontal cortex so they lose it and they hit out all over the place and we have learned slowly through Oasis over these 30 years that the way to work with young people like that older people like that is through love not through punishment because it's only love that changes things so that's why Paul says love never fails and I think it's the love of God that changes people so back to what Tom would say because pot Tom does say this. Uh, like many others, he says, you know, God is love, uh, but God is also just, and because God is love, He grants us freedom, and and that means that at the end of our lives, if we've chosen to live a way that's not Christ-like, He just says to us, well, you know, there, there you are. It, I, I'm not sending you into hell. You're sending yourself into hell, which, by the way, is a real big relativization of what was formerly said. But what they, what these scholars have tried to do is is make it all a little bit more palatable but hang on to this old kind of 16th century uh, dante informed doctrine whereas what paul is arguing is that some of us he says this in corinthians the passage that no evangelical ever preaches on um one corinthians chapter 13 he says that some of us build with gold and silver and, and precious stones. Some of us build through our lives with with hay and rubble and bricks, and in the end they're going to be burnt up in the fire. But you will be saved through the fire. And now I quote um, Ratzinger, Cardinal Cardinal Ratzinger, um, Pope ben- Benedict in there, great scholar. And and Ratzinger, you know, the Catholic Church turned that one Corinthians three bit into the purging and into purgatory and Dante turned it into, you know, a, a terrible time, but you get through it. But Ratzinger says this, the, it's not a place, the purging isn't a place and it's not a length of time, it's a moment. It's a moment when in your brokenness, you come face to face with the burning love of God, which burns through all the dross, rewires you, some of this is me, not him, but it's me building on mm. his thought completely. I have learned, Oasis has learned, that it's only love that rewires people's neural connections. It's only love that uh, renews a mind. I believe that that's what Paul's talking about. And I believe that's what God does with us in the end. I don't think anyone ever walks away from love. And that's why I think Tom's wrong.
0: And in the end, you'd say that love does reach all people. Of course, it will. Um, and, does, and is it quite a middle? Is it quite a privileged position where one can talk about free will and talk about the decision you make? When the people you've described have such backgrounds and upbringings that it doesn't make as much sense to talk about them. I mean, are they as morally responsible as?
1: Well, the, no. The, the The reality. So, uh, a project that Oasis is just involved in is um, with 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 young. Young people in detention centres. Um, I I sit on one two, I sit on two panels for the London mayor on youth violence, and and have been involved with the interparliamentary group as well, and given evidence to, mm. you know, uh, and and still involved with them. And we work in a A&E, the a and e's of two hospitals, one in Enfield and one in uh, in St Thomas's in Waterloo. We work with kids who are stabbed, shot drugs etc etc any child or young person under the age of 22 involved in violent crime who ends up in those A&Es we work with them. The truth is that their decision-making ability, especially when faced with an aggressive situation, is diminished. Our scientists know this, our sociologists know this, our psychologists know this. Actually, what happens is your brain shuts down and it focuses on the danger in front and it's informed by all your past experiences. It your prefrontal cortex in it another way is overloaded overridden and you behave with all sorts of instincts so 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 in actual fact well we know this we know this this is a fact you know this isn't one or two quirky scientists who've yet to have their theories approved we this is the way we work it's the way education is done around the world um, we have just uh, applied to the, the, uh, the Ministry of Justice to work with them more closely. We went for an interview for two hours and all they talked about to us, all the Ministry of Justice, there were nine on the panel, just talked about therapeutic, um, therapeutically informed ways of working with dysfunctional young people and older people.
0: This is where the church is, well, the The church
1: is miles behind, it's still, you know, church is miles behind, we're still writing people off as evil, so Tom says, well, God has to deal with evil and take these people, Miroslav Volf says it as well, I can't believe it, but he says this, actually, what God, do we believe in a God who doesn't understand a therapeutically informed approach? to humanity, who doesn't understand the human brain, who doesn't understand the implications of the lack of love on one generation and the next generation. I believe lo- I know love melts everything. The fire of love burns through the the hardest resistance. And that's what Paul says in one Corinthians three. God is love. So back to Karl Bart, I am not a universalist. Christ is the only way. We are saved by the faithfulness of Christ, not our faith in Christ. I am not a universalist, but I do believe that Christ, Christ's love, is the reconciler of all.
0: So you write that it's a time for a new reformation. I mean, mm. do you hope this book will spark kind of some kind of new reformation in the church? I,
1: I do. do I don't want to make arrogant claims of what I might write. We're all part of a debate. Actually, the first sentence of the book is, uh, chapter one, um, line one is, I want to start a conversation, a conversation about Paul because I think he's been misunderstood. And I think because he's had such an influence on the church uh, through the years, we've ended up with a nasty version of Christianity in many ways, not an including version, not one that you can passionately give yourself to. Um, So that's the conversation I want to start. I do say at several points in the book that what Luther did, you uh, you know, picking on Luther again, picking on Martin Luther, I actually say uh, in the book, I hope, Martin Luther brings his contribution and everyone who brings their contribution to the debate uh, needs credit. And, and so I'm not um, standing in some judgmental way over Calvin or Luther or anyone else. I think they made mistakes. I think they didn't have access to the kind of scholarship we have. Uh, you know, just the, do, you, do you know, a um, hundred years ago, a hundred years ago in Egypt, in, a, in an old um, abandoned city in Egypt, we dug up, we dug up, Oxford scholars dug up, half a million documents, half a million documents now loads of them were invoices for donkeys and you know whatever but endless ones of them are documents that refer to the new testament or to homer etc etc so just through that and you've never heard of those you know we've heard of the dead sea scrolls which are still being analyzed but just through that, that that in oxford most of these documents are in oxford there are they they say there are tens of thousands referring to um, the kind of language used in the new testament that is not yet have not yet received scholarly attention so so uh, uh, before i finish you know why did we decide that luther was wrong about pistis meaning faith and and it really mean faithfulness of christ rather than faith in christ uh, well first of all it was the way that it had been interpreted always up until luther so when i say Romans 3 is about being saved through the faithfulness of Christ. This isn't some kind of, ooh, you know, here comes a faddish reading that Steve Jules come up with. Actually, if you read Jerome, you know, if you read the King James Version of the Bible, if you read any translation that comes before Martin Luther, they all say we're saved through the faith of christ or the faithfulness of christ it's it's luther and calvin that come up with this new faddish thing that lasts a little bit until slowly scholars say no as we're discovering more and more about the greek text we know this isn't what it means and though many of our modern bibles still have you are saved by by the faith by faith in christ in them i challenge anybody who disagrees with me just to read the The NIV, the New International Version, the latest edition, I think it's 2012 or 11, I can't quite remember. But in all the other editions of the NIV, Romans 3 is, you are saved by faith in Christ. But if you read, read the latest one, it says you're saved by faith in Christ, but it's got a little letter. You look down at the bottom, A or whatever it is, look down at the bottom, it says, or by the faithfulness of Christ. They have to acknowledge you can interpret these words this way now. So uh, so am I trying to start um, a new reformation? I think we should all be uh, chasing a new reformation. We've got to keep reforming. But the thing is, this last statement, that the thing is that what Martin Luther and Calvin after him and others after him came along and they looked at medieval Catholicism uh, with all its imperfections, and it was medieval Catholicism, not not Catholicism. Now I'm not condemning Catholicism, but they looked at medieval Catholicism with its payments for grace from God, etc., etc., and they said this system is a system of power, and it's a system of control. And the way you create power and control is you create fear, and then you create guilt. You dangle people over hell, and then you tell them you've got the answer. And the answer happens to be, um, give us money. <laughs> you know, So they did away with that.
0: Mm.
1: But what I say in the book is, inadvertently perhaps, perhaps deliberately, they invented another system of power and control, but they were at the center, filled with guilt and shame, original sin, only if you have faith and believe what we believe will you be saved. So they invented another system of control and power filled with guilt guilt and shame and fear and what i say is together we must work to a place where we have a version of church that works that's biblically honoring and is about inclusion and acceptance and joy and liberation and hope not fear and shame and guilt and control that is the journey i believe we all need to go on i hope my book is a little bit of a help in that conversation
0: thank you for listening to this week's episode of the church times podcast you can find more news analysis comment and book reviews on our website churchtimes.co.uk if you are not yet a subscriber to the church times you can try your first 10 issues for just 10 pounds you'll get the paper delivered to your door every friday plus full access to our website and digital archive Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.